Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. Today, Jason is in part 15 of his series on the walk through the book of Acts, entitled The Works of Christ. Turn to Acts chapter 3, and today Jason is looking at verses 17 through 26. Here's Jason. Well, we are continuing through our walk through Acts, watching Jesus at work, and today we are going to see Jesus preached once again by the Apostle Peter. In a, in a sermon that, that, that I've entitled quite simply, The Works of Christ, that is where Peter is going to go. That is where Peter has already gone. And as we're going to see, that is where Peter continues to go as he preaches. That is where the Apostle Paul goes as he continues to preach as well once he is saved in Acts chapter 9 and becomes one of the central focuses in the later chapters of, of Acts. But I thought it would be good since it's been a couple weeks since we looked at the beginning of Peter's sermon that, that we actually looked at the entire sermon. So I'd like us to start today in, in chapter 3 and we're going to read verses 11 all the way to 26. And keeping in mind, remembering how God has orchestrated this day and how God has been behind everything up to this point. And Christ has been growing His church. That Christ has been allowing things to happen to gather great large crowds so that they would come and they would hear about Him. So look at verse 11 and follow along as I read out loud. While he was clinging to Peter and John, who the, the man who was once paralyzed that was just not so many minutes ago jumping and leaping and praising God. All the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the Prince of Life, the One whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in His name, it is the name of Jesus which has straightened Strengthen this man whom you see and know and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And then he continues on. And this is what we're going to look at today and unpack these verses. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you, and it will be that every soul that does not heed 
that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days, it is you who are the sons of the prophet and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for giving us Your Word, for making Yourself known to us, for its pages are full of truth. And its pages point to the Messiah, to the Anointed One, to the Righteous and Holy One, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that He would be glorified, that He would be honored, that He would be magnified, that His name would be lifted high above all other names this morning. For there is no other name by which man can be saved, Lord. So illuminate Your Word this morning through the Helper, our Helper, the Holy Spirit. And change us, transform us. And allow us to see things the way that you see them. To see sin the way that you see sin. And cause us to walk in the newness of life that you have for us that know you as Savior. And those that do not know you, Lord, may you bring them to yourself. For it's in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen. So what we're going to see today is Peter highlighting three works of Christ. I know the outline might seem quite simple, but it's actually really profound and deep. First, what we're going to see is we're going to see the suffering of Christ, and and that has already been fulfilled. And we're going to see that in verses 17 and 18. That He indeed is the Deliverer. That there is no other Deliverer outside of Christ. Then we're going to see what, what I've entitled the Reign of Christ. And that is yet to be fulfilled. And that's going to be seen in verses 19 to 23. That He is not only the King that will restore all things, but He is the righteous judge. And the final highlight of Christ's work that we're going to see is the blessing of Christ. The blessing that He gives, in particular to the Jews that that He's preaching to. But that blessing also flows to to you and I. And that's seen in in verses 24 to 26 because Jesus truly is the giver of all good things. And so so we know where, where, where Peter's gone, where he's been, that this man, this paralyzed man, has been healed miraculously by Peter. But it wasn't actually by Peter at all. It was by the name of Jesus Christ. It was through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. And what we saw a couple weeks back was was Peter wanted them to get the focus off of him and off of John and their power and their piety and all these things. And he wanted to rivet their focus on who? On Christ. On the Messiah. The one true Messiah. And so what we're going to see today is, is, is now he takes that focus off of Christ, having established all the things that he established. And he puts the focus back onto them. 
Because what he desires is repentance. He wants them to understand where they are at, what they must do in order to be saved. And the first thing that that he deals with in order to pave the way for calling them to repentance, commanding them to repent, is the suffering of Christ. Look, Look at verse 17 with me. And now, brethren, I know that you act in an ignorance just as your rulers did also. Notice the time word that he starts with, and now. So so he's already clearly defined who Jesus was, who Jesus is, and how their involvement played out, right? He's made that clear to them. That you did this. Pilate was going to let him go, but you actually said, no, let's let the murderer go instead. You are guilty of this. But he doesn't just leave it at that. He's trying to bring them to the point to where they recognize that there is something that that they need to do. And that is repentance. And as he's trying to get personal and and, and place the focus on them, look at what he says. He calls them brethren again. We've seen this term several times already. As he gets up to preach to the Jews, he calls them brethren. If there's any time where you would think he he wouldn't want to identify himself with them, it would be right now. Because he's just shown them that they were the ones that killed His risen Lord and Savior. And in fact, it wasn't just His risen Lord and Savior, it was the promised one. It's their Savior as well. Their Messiah. But instead of being ungracious with them and separating Himself from them, He actually includes Himself with them. Why is that? I believe it's because Peter recognized that as he just proved to them that they disowned the Messiah that he knew full well that he too disowned the Messiah. And that in, in, in terms of, of what light they were both walking in, that, that Peter actually had walked and talked and watched and been taught by Jesus for years, right? And yet when it came time, what did he do? He denied Jesus. Three times. He disowned Jesus, much like they had done. And so what is he able to do? He's able to give grace because he was given grace. And there's not one of us in this room that shouldn't have that same attitude. All of us should recognize that none of us deserve grace. Right? If God were to treat us the way that our sins deserve, we would be without hope, hopeless forever. But instead, God in His grace lavishes His grace upon us. And now in turn, that's what we should do. We should recognize that none of us deserve to be sitting at the table with our King. But by grace. And then he goes on and he says this, I know that you acted in ignorance. That word know there is it's got some significance behind the foundation of where it comes from. The Greek word, it actually comes from this word that means to see. And it gives the idea of seeing something and coming to a knowledge of that particular thing which has been seen. And I don't know if maybe he's getting at the fact that perhaps some of the ones that he is preaching to, right there and then, he had seen them in the crowd. Screaming, crucify Him, crucify Him. Perhaps this is the time. 
And so when he says, I see, it's not so, so much that, that, that even, I, I think he, there is an aspect where he saw them physically, but it's the idea of, oh yes, I know. And don't we do the same thing in English? When, when somebody comes and explains something to you, and you, and you finally grasp it, what do you say? Oh, oh, I see. Do you really mean that you saw that thing? No, especially if it's some weird concept that they're trying to teach you. And you get it. What do you, you say, I see. What you mean is, I know. I get it. And that is what Peter is saying. He's identifying with them, saying, yes, I understand. That you what? That you acted in ignorance. Just as your rulers did also. What was the ignorance? They did not understand that this was indeed the Messiah. If this was the Messiah and they had truly grasped that which He was, then they wouldn't have done what they did. This ignorance is, is a lack of information that, that results in some sort of reprehensible conduct that shows a lack of discernment and knowledge of a, of a particular thing. That's how they were acting. And, and, and in God's Word, generally when we see sins, you can kind of break sins into two different categories. And might I say these are sins. Just because it's, it's deemed a sin of ignorance does not mean that they are not guilty. So on the one hand, you have an unintentional sin. And, and that could be looked at as something like a, a, a trap door that swings out from under your feet. You, you didn't even know it was there. You didn't even know you committed it. But it is sin. The other kind of sin it w- would be considered a, an intentional sin. And, and this is more like, like looking at a double door from a distance. And as you walk up to that door... You know you're not supposed to open that door. But from a distance, you've already committed in your mind, I'm going to go through that door whether I'm supposed to or not. It's a deliberate act of your will that you're saying, you know what, I I don't care. I'm going to go through that door. And and the Scriptures translate this in in, in various different ways. Sometimes it's called a presumptuous sin, and and that's how it's translated in the ESV. The NIV would translate it as a willful sin. Other places it's a deliberate sin. And in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word presumptuous sin means it's, it's actually called a, a high-handed sin. Which, which gives the connotation of, of, of literally raising your fist in God's face and saying, no, I'm going to do it this way. And I, I think it's, it's telling that it's called presumptuous sin because, because we presume things. And I think two big things. First, we presume to know better than God. Second, we presume that sin is no big deal. And yet the reality is it is a big deal to our God. What's really interesting is, is as you dig and you look at the Old Testament and you see the sacrificial system and all the sins that they could atone for, that, that they could come to the priest with, an intentional sin, a deliberate sin, there's there's really no provision made in the Mosaic Covenant for it. Some have said, oh, no, no, I, I, I believe it's the, the Day of Atonement. And yet Hebrews says that, that it was not for sins that were intentional, but the Day of Atonement in Hebrews 9-7 says that it was for sins of ignorance. Now, there is a condition that if it's in Leviticus 6, 1-5, it says if you're caught lying or stealing, then there is a provision for that. But what about a, an intentional sin such as murder or adultery? 
what, what was the punishment for adultery? David, for his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, should have been? Yeah, stoned, died, dead, done. And yet the reality is, is if we took some time and we looked at Psalm 51, or we looked at Psalm 38, or we looked at Psalm 19, we see places in Scripture, especially by the writing of David himself, who speaks of repentance and then God's restoration. So I don't want us to get to the point where we think, oh, there's nothing that can be done. No, there is. But the reality is of what Peter is communicating here is sin is grievous. Whether it's intentional or unintentional, it's huge before God. And in fact, unintentional sin is something that you you could go to Leviticus 4, and depending on if you were a priest or a leader or a common people, if you did do an unintentional sin, something you didn't know that you were doing, you could make it right. You could atone for it. But these other sins, there's forethought, there's defiance, there's rebellion. That's why they call them willful sins, presumptuous sins. They're fully intentional with our eyes wide open. I just don't care what God thinks. I'm going to do this anyways. And and when we live like that, there's nothing safe about living in a sin that you know is wrong. And even though the Jewish people who Peter's preaching to did not fully grasp what's going on, they did not fully grasp that this was indeed the Messiah, we know from verse 18 that God did grasp it. That God knew full well what was going on. In fact, He was fulfilling all this according to His purposes and His plan. Look at verse 18. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that as Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. Announced beforehand that He foretold, that He predicted by all the prophets, not just one, all of them were pointing to this particular thing. Not to this thing, but to this person, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Expected Deliverer. And then it dives in deeper as to what it is that it was being announced about Him. That He would what? That He would suffer. This is to unfavorably endure. This is to suffer death, to be killed, to be in pain. And and yet, what does God say? God's Word says that this was part of His plan. This was part of His fulfilled plan. Prophecy. Him working out His purposes. Just think with me for a minute how incredible this is. Because these guys were acting what? Totally independently of God. Totally autonomously. In their own power. They were thinking they were accomplishing one thing. And yet, what was God doing? A completely, entirely different thing. He was accomplishing redemption. They just thought they were murdering Isn't it amazing that God can take the most horrible, evil act such as this and He can use it for good? And that all the evil in the world, I mean, just try to grasp this, all the evil in the world cannot derail God's purpose and plan. That's the kind of God that that we serve, that we have a relationship with. And and if we were going to turn to Genesis chapter 50, and we're going to look at the life of Joseph, would we not see this in vivid detail, in high definition, 
over and over again as Joseph's brothers do evil upon him. Time and time and time again. And then even when he gets away from his brothers, it seems like, man, more and more terrible things are happening to Joseph. And yet the reality is, when God brings everything to fruition, and we see, oh man, this was God's plan. Look at this. This is awesome. God brings his brothers to him. And do you remember what Joseph says to his brothers? This would be a good passage to, to memorize. Genesis 50, 20. He says this, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That God can take something evil, flip it upside down and make it good. That's how wonderful our God is. And this is the same wonderful working that God does in the crucifixion. But even though this was God's plan, even, this, even though this was the fulfillment of his prophets and, and, and the prophetic utterings of his prophets, that doesn't mean that they're not guilty. And the only way for them to be exonerated, to make, wrong, to make this wrong right, was through repentance. And, and, and that's where he goes, which ultimately is going to lead us to this, to the reign of Christ. Because before Christ can reign in our hearts, we, we have to repent. Look at verses 19 to 21. And instead of leaving them where, where they are in this terrible state, He gives them hope upon hope. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from ancient time. So we see both the need for repentance and we see the blessing of repentance with these so that clauses that tells us the purpose of this is what's going to happen if repentance happens. And there's three things that we see. First, what will happen? Your sins will be wiped out. Times of refreshing will come. God would send the Christ who is appointed for you. And what does he start with? He, he starts with, therefore, on the basis of what I just stated. On the fact that Christ suffered for the sins of man, for you. On the basis of that, repent. This doesn't mean just be sorry. This isn't, oh, well, if it feels okay. No, this is a command and this is change your mind, change the direction that you're going. To change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought in regards towards righteousness and sin. A change of mind that results in a change of behavior, that you're turning and going the other way. But notice also the hope that's implied here. As what Peter is basically saying is, yes, you have messed up royally. You crucified the Messiah. You missed Him the first time, but you are now given a second chance to accept Him. So repent. And if you repent, I mean, the most incredible thing will happen then your sins will be wiped away. 
A good definition for sins could, could be this, a departure from God's standard of uprightness, of what is right. A departure from what God's standard of uprightness is. To, to Literally to miss the mark. And here it, it has a nuanced meaning that as an entry in a ledger. It, it's as if God takes every sin that we've ever committed and He writes it on a ledger. It turns into, man, a great big book full of all of our sin. And there's nothing we can do to make that right. In and of ourselves. Coming to church, acting like this, doing this, doing that, will never amount to being able to make this right. But Christ can and did through Him dying on the cross. And that is why if you repent, what can happen? Your sins can be wiped away. To cause to disappear by wiping to remove something so as to leave no trace. To destroy, to obliterate. It's a removal resulting from the blotting out of a written record. And and back in these days, they wrote everything on papyrus, right? And the ink that they used, it it, it didn't have the same acid that we use today that, that made it permanent. It didn't bite into the papyrus. It stayed on the, on, on the top level. And so in order to get rid of that, all you need to do is get some cloth with some water and then that would wipe right off, right off and, and you would basically have a clean slate. That is the picture. That God has taken all the sins on this ledger and He's wiped them completely clean because of the work of Christ. Because of what He has done. This is the same word used in the book of Revelation. Speaking of God who what? Who wipes away our tears in, in, in Revelation 21.4. And then on um, almost the converse of Christ who refuses to wipe our names from the book of life. Isn't that cool? He, refu- he will not wipe our names from the book of life. That is a permanent thing. But our sins, they can be wiped. I, I believe this is the, the idea behind that, that famous hymn, It is well with my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That's someone who recognizes what has happened. That his sin has been wiped off. Wiped away. Done away with. But then look at what happens. is As we notice that most of us, we carry around a big bag of guilt over the wrong things we've done or the wrong things that have been done to us. And so here's another incredible blessing of repentance in order that times of refreshing may come. I I believe this has two aspects. On on the one hand, it's talking about the nation of Israel. First, individually they were to repent and then their sins would be wiped out. But then there's an aspect of if they as a nation would repent and they would accept Christ as the Messiah, then this refreshing would come. And this, and what he says later is this period of restoration would come. But for you and I individually, don't we need refreshing? It, it literally means to experience a relief from an obligation or trouble, a relaxation, a relief, a re- respite. Rest. I believe what it is, is it's the positive aspect of forgiveness. And that God does not merely just wipe away our sin. 
but he, he gives our spirits a refreshment and relief. The, the, the Christian life isn't supposed to be something burdensome where we walk around with guilt over and over again. If there is guilt, man, let it be godly sorrow that brings you to repentance, as, as Corinthians talks about, right? That brings us to repentance so that God could then refresh our soul. Perhaps maybe the reason why you're not experiencing refreshing right now is because there is a sin. One of these high-handed sins that you need to repent of. And then maybe the refreshing will come. And look at what he says in verse 20. And that he, okay, on the, that God, on the basis of your repentance, and this I believe he's talking about the whole nation, that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration. So there's a time where Jesus has to go up to heaven and he stays there until this period, this predetermined time, this fixed, set, particular time where Jesus is going to come back. He is coming. The second coming is going to happen. And when that happens, he's going to establish his kingdom. And what is he going to do? He's going to restore all things. When nature will be liberated from the curse and the decay of sin, as God will make a new heaven and a new earth, but but this doesn't deal with just the nation of Israel. This deals with all things, as Christ will restore all things. And, And where does Peter say this comes from? He says this comes from all the prophets. But now he's going to go on and he's going to say, okay, in particular, let me pull out three that you would be very knowledgeable of. And the first one he goes to is Moses. Why? Because Moses was the first and the greatest prophet. Although he does mention Abraham who came before Moses. But look at verse 22 to 23. As what he says about Moses to bring them in, to let them know that This was God's plan the whole time. Going all the way back to Moses. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. So first he says, Okay, so Jesus is the New Testament Moses. That he is a prophet of God, that his words were God's very words. Why? Well, actually, he's greater than Moses because he is indeed God. But Jesus not only will come as the eternal king who will restore all things, he will come as the judge. And for any and all that do not heed or hear or abide by or repent from this to Jesus, that all of those people that stay in defiance, in rebellion towards Jesus Christ and His message, that they shall be what? They shall be utterly destroyed. To eliminate by destruction. To root out. To destroy utterly. This isn't talking about annihilationism to where instead of going to... to Spend forever in hell. Somebody just goes and boom, they're, they're obliterated one, at one particular point in time. No, this is, this is talking about an eternity of destruction. Praise the Lord, he, he doesn't leave them there after already 
offering them salvation through repentance. He goes on and, and, and this is what he, what he finishes with. The blessings of Christ. The blessings that Christ will bring. Look at verse 24. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and successors onward also announced these days. So it's natural for him to go from Moses to Samuel because he's the next one. He's the next prophet in line. But if we were to spend time looking at Samuel, you're, you're not going to find a, a nice passage like he quoted from Moses that, that depicts clearly a, a messianic prophecy. So, so what's the deal with Samuel? Why, why, why would he bring Samuel in to this entire discussion? Proving that the Old Testament prophets pointed forward to this day. Well, he does that because Samuel was the prophet who anointed David who anointed David and also spoke of the establishment of David's kingdom, which ultimately points through that kingdom to a much greater kingdom, to the eternal kingdom of the eternal king who is the Messiah. And it says, and his successors, that it wasn't just Samuel, it was all those that followed after him, that they were all pointing to the same day, to the same person, Christ. And then he goes on in in 25. And he says, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he takes it even further back than Moses. And he goes back to Abraham. and And he says, Look, this is God's promise to Abraham. I'm speaking of the Abrahamic covenant. You know full well the Abrahamic covenant. And then he, then he speaks of this seed through which all the families of the earth will be blessed. Seed there is singular. And that has great significance because it's pointing to one singular ancestor of Abraham. Christ, the Messiah, that when He comes, He is going to bless the entire earth. How? By making salvation available to all. Not that all will be saved, but that salvation will be available to all. Man, God's grace is so amazing. And even Peter's understanding of how all the different prophets pointed forward to, to Christ. It's, it's not just Moses. It's not just Samuel. But all the prophets and, and going even before then to, to Abraham. And the Jews would understand this. And and. And he'd finally come to this point to allow them to see in a capsule how this all works out and how that this was God's plan and that they play an important part not only in, on, on the negative aspect of, of crucifying the risen Lord and Savior, but how God has made salvation available to them. Look at verse 26. For you first, God raised up His servant and sent Him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. For you first, that means in the first place, above all, referring to prominence, Peter is singling out the Jews and rightfully so. Why? Because they were God's chosen people. They still are God's chosen people. God is not finished working with them yet. True, they they don't see this church age as even in Scripture, but this was part of God's plan. And that's what he's pointing to. Do you remember what Jesus said? In Acts 1.8, 
to the apostles about who this talk of the kingdom should go to. This talk of Him, the Gospel. He says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses where? In Jerusalem. That's the Jews. That's where you go first. And then in all Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. It, it, it starts off with the Jewish people. And that's what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts. That that's where they go first. And then he says, God raised up what? His servant. Again, this isn't, this isn't a title for Christ that's used a whole lot in the, in the New Testament. Only four times. But in the Old Testament, that these guys would understand it's used a lot. Particularly in the writings of Isaiah in chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 52, all the way to chapter 53. Talking about the servant in particular, the suffering servant. And then we see what, what that servant has come to do. And sent him, the servant, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. Notice that God not only wants to, to bless them and to bless us as His children through redemption and through having our sins forgiven and having them wiped out, but it goes deeper than that. He also wants and desires us to turn away from our sinful ways. I believe this speaks to the expectations of, of all involved here. First, the expectation of, of this paralyzed beggar. Do you remember what he wanted? All that he wanted was silver and gold. And what did he get? So much more. What did the nation of Israel want? They wanted a Messiah that would save them from the Romans. That would come and free them. That would deliver them from the Romans. Instead, what does Jesus offer them? What does Jesus open the way for? So much more. Deliverance from sin. Deliverance from death. And does He not offer us the same? And at times, do we not expect less? Finally, notice who it is that is doing the turning of the person from wickedness. For you first, God raised up His servant and sent Him to bless you by turning every one of you. It's the servant that's, that's doing the turning and allowing them to get it, to understand, oh yes, we, we have done this terrible thing and it is Christ working in and through us that works in us, that raises up this desire for us to turn from our wicked ways. The question is, do we listen to Him? Or have we become so callous to sin that, that we don't even think of it anymore as sin? You know what God said through Peter to these Jews here? Is it not the same thing that He is saying to us today? Regardless of what you've done, no matter what guilt you may be carrying around, God says to you, it's for people like you that I sent Him. Is that not the gospel? That Jesus came to bring salvation to those who would turn to Him and recognize that this weight that they carry can only be lifted by Jesus. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that weight is, is the initial 
turning to Christ, that you've never trusted Him as Savior, that you've never truly understood what that meant. And maybe today God is making that clear to you. Yes, okay, I finally get it. There's no way that I can remedy the situation, just as these guys couldn't. And what's the answer? The answer is repentance and the work of Christ. He is the one that accomplished all things. So turn to Him this morning and trust in Him for salvation. For those of us that have already trusted in Him for salvation, perhaps Christ is calling us to repent of those sins that we continue to do today. Look look at these final two thoughts. Points to ponder this week. and, And these have hurt me this week, actually. Because these are hard things to pray. But so important to our relationship with the Lord. Number one, consider how the Israelites acted in signal sinful ignorance this week. And ask the Lord to reveal to you any ways that you might be acting sinfully without knowing it. Sometimes we develop habits that we don't even know are sinful. And that maybe what started off as a drive to work and getting agitated with somebody and the Spirit pricked you, well, now it's actually turned into something that you you don't even think about anymore. And yet you're angry on the way to work every day. Or what have you? Ask the Lord to reveal those things. Or consider, number two, heavy-handed or presumptuous sins this week. Is there any sin area in your life where you're presuming that the sin that you are living in is just no big deal? Because you know what? It is a big deal to our God to your relationship with Him and to the relationship with those around you. He wants to have sweet fellowship with you. He he wants you to have this refreshing time with Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, for how precious it is, Lord, for the truth that's contained in it. Because if we did not have Your Word, we would forget so many things about Your grace, about Your love. Lord, we pray that as we go from here that that You would continue to have Your way in our hearts. That You would reveal those areas of sin that, that we don't even know that we are doing so that we might walk in closer fellowship with You and with one another. And we pray for those Those other sins as well, Lord. Those sins of presumption that are willful sins. The door that we are willingly walking through, Lord, that You would grab a hold of our hearts. That You would cause us to repent and turn from those evil things and seek Your face alone. We thank You for grace and we recognize that none of us deserve it, but we rejoice in the grace that You have freely given. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. 
Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.